All right, hello and welcome to the Killing Time Podcast. My name is Arch Grieve and I'm your host. And today I'm coming at you from Ripley, Ohio. And um, I'm excited today because we get to talk to a, um, a uh, professor of economics. And so it's going to be a fun uh, episode. And um, this episode actually is sponsored by Greenleaf Book Group, a hybrid book publisher and distributor dedicated to empowering authors. And you can learn more about the work uh, Greenleaf Book Group does by visiting greenleafbookgroup.com. Again, that's greenleafbookgroup.com. So today, my guest is Dr. Lawrence C. Marsh, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame's Department of Economics. And he taught graduate and undergraduate economics there for 30 years and served as the director of Notre Dame's PhD program in economics for 13 years. Uh, He's also a co-founder of the Midwest Econometrics Group, which analyzes statistical data as it relates to economics. And when he's not with his family, he tutors students as a volunteer at a neighboring university in Kansas City, Missouri, where he resides. He's also the author of the book Optimal Money Flow, a new vision of how a dynamic growth economy can work for everyone. And I read it and I'm excited to talk with him. So let's give him a call and talk about his new book. Hi, is this Dr. Marsh? Yes, yes. This oh. is Arch Grief. Yes, that's him. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being on. And um, so before we you know, get into your book too much, I, I always like to ask people to talk about how their life has changed as a result of the pandemic. So w- what's been different for you in, in your part of the country? Well, um, with regard to the pandemic, uh, my wife and I, since we're both retired, uh, we stay home uh, pretty much all day, but I get up at three thirty every morning, oh, wow. and um, I walk. I walk for two and a half hours, but I I listen to um, well, podcasts. Oh, great! Yeah. <laughs> and and book, audio books, and it's really great. I, I really you know get some alone time and really enjoy uh, the podcasts and the audio books and uh, and I get a little exercise. Um, you know, for us older people, uh, walking is is considered an exercise. I know younger folk probably don't consider yeah, it such, but uh, that's that's kind of what we're doing. Well, that's great. Well, I will. Uh, I'm going to come back to those podcasts. I'll maybe ask for a couple recommendations uh, before we let you go, but. Um, I uh, I wanted to you know get into right into your your new book that's out, and um, I you know I think I. I you know, did a little bit of an intro at the beginning, and I think people will recognize that you're you're kind of a, a big name in economics. And I um, I used to just teach high school economics, and but it was still one of my favorite subjects. And so I really enjoyed your book, and I'm excited about a lot of your ideas. But um, correct me if I'm wrong; it it almost sounds like you're you're kind of creating a new economic school of thought. And I think that the key to understanding that school of thought is all about money flow, and and you compare that to um, you know, money flow and the economy being like the blood in our bodies and the government being at the heart of that, that keeps the money flowing. So I wonder, can you talk a little bit about why money flow is, is so important? Well, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, Arch, because um, the money flow situation has changed dramatically since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. So we had an entirely different environment with regard to money flow after World War II than we have now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Right after World War II, we had all the GIs coming back from the war, 
and you know they were they're starting up their their, their families, their homes. Their, mm-hmm. um, that's was of course the ba- when baby boomers were babies, right. <laughs> and so they they um, were uh, needed homes built. They needed furniture. They needed appliances. They needed you know bicycles for the kids and and clothing. And and then of course um, General Eisenhower had seen uh, as he his troops entered Germany. They saw these uh, magnificent autobahn that was a highway that connected the east and the west of Germany, so they could rush their troops back and forth uh, as needed. Mm-hmm. So he was inspired by that, and as President Eisenhower, uh, he started the uh, Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. So the, the interstate that we know today was, of course, President Eisenhower's initiative, and that required a lot of work and a lot of uh, demand for workers at that time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, the uh, unions were strong. They had like 35% of the workforce was unionized. So there was a very strong um, demand for labor, and that gave the workers really good wages. Um, and so there was a strong demand for goods and services. But the problem, Arch, was that supply was very weak. The the mm-hmm. Germany was, of course, you know, Dresden was in the rubble. Uh, Japan, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki were rubble. Right. Um, there was no global supply chain that we think of today. And so uh, the supply was very weak, but demand was very strong. Mm-hmm. And so in that environment, gradually we got into an inflationary situation where there was too much too much money chasing too few goods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so in the 70s, it got up to 8 9 10% inflation. It, you know, it got to be really bad. And, and to, to do... Um, deficit spending back then would, you know, that was just going to make more inflation. That was just really bad. But yeah. the problem we have now is exactly the opposite. We, we have a situation where demand is very weak, that the money flow is flowing more to Wall Street than to Main Street. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the, the, the people, American people are having trouble buying back the value of the goods and services they're producing. Right. And the, when, when the communism collapsed, that that brought about a huge increase in the world labor supply in the capitalist in, within capitalism, because it was almost as if those guys were locked up in prison in the communist countries. But mm-hmm. when that when those cell doors opened, and they, all of these um, Chinese and all the Russian and all the various uh, people around the world, and through this global supply network, were able to supply goods and services at very low prices. And that really weakened the power of labor in the United States. Because mm-hmm. we talk about the invisible hand, but there's really two invisible hands. There's Adam Smith's invisible hand that, that talks about, you know, people working for their own interests, but in doing so through competition, they actually produce better quality goods at lower prices. Right. And that's great. But there's a second invisible hand. Mm-hmm. And the second invisible hand is, is, is power, mm-hmm. is economic power. And after World War II, labor had a lot of economic power. But now, under the current environment, labor is very weak and has very little power. And so much money is flowing into Wall Street that Wall Street has almost come, become a, sep- a separate economy. Right. So when the, and all the tools that the Federal Reserve um, has are really aimed at working through uh, Wall Street. They're mm-hmm. aimed at the kind of economy that we had right after World War II. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it was a matter of stimulating the supply side and getting the supply side going. 
and, and trying to get more money available for, for expansion of, of plant and equipment. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, the money going to Wall Street, instead of going into the real economy, it ends up to just uh, pushing the stock and bond prices up and driving interest rates down, and it doesn't really go anywhere. And to the extent that it adds to plant and equipment, the plant and equipment's overseas. Right. <laughs> the, the, companies, the big companies take the money and they buy stuff overseas. So what it boils down to uh, is that the American people can't buy back the value of the goods and services they're producing. Mm-hmm. So the federal government steps in with the, this uh, deficit spending to fill in the gap. That's that's kind of where we're at. Right. Um, well, so that's the basic situation. Well, and you, um, speaking of, you know, I, I learned about the, the second invisible hand from your book. I, um, I've never really heard that concept before. And, you, you know, you talk about how, you know, that second one serves that economic power by attempting to dominate the market. And uh, that's where our monopolies and oligopolies come from. Um, your solution um, in the book sounds like it's, um, it's maybe about more regulation, but you know, I know that that's not a popular policy on the right these days. So I'm wondering, how do you sell that to people? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, there's there's uh, some really uh, good books. Um, there's one called The Captured Economy. I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember the author's name. But he's basically showing how these uh, some regulations and restrictions, including patents, have actually restricted the uh, efficiency of the economy and made it less efficient uh, by by because patents whole point of patent was to to encourage a company to make uh, investments that right. might take a few years to to, to, to pay back to, to earn the money back but they hold on to these things for 10 20 30 40 50 years and and instead of encouraging innovation it's actually suppressing innovation right. and so and then there's another book that came out called the myth of capitalism by Jonathan Tepper, and it probably should have been called um, the myth of competition, because mm-hmm. what has happened is, we since 1980 we have allowed uh, companies to consolidate, these big corporations to consolidate and form, if not monopolies, then more like duopolies or oligopolies, where there are very few firms in an industry. And you know, you would think like beer. You would think, wait a minute, there's beer all over the place. People mm-hmm. are brewing their own beer and so forth. But if you look at the brands, you'll find out there's really two big companies that dominate the beer industry and take most of the profits and most of the earn most of the money in the beer industry. Eyeglass is another one. You know, you think plastic and glass. I mean, how how much could that cost to produce? And yet, you pay what ninety five dollars, a hundred dollars for a pair of glasses. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, the regulation. there could be good regulation and bad regulation. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to differentiate between when regulation is helping us and when regulation is hurting us. We can't just use the broad brush of, you know, it's always bad or it's always good. Right. And that's one of my frustrations, too, is that, you know, I don't think anyone argues that we should get rid of regulation totally because everybody has their regulations that they like, <laughs> but um, yeah. they there's just others that they don't. And um, so, yeah, well... You, you know, along those lines, you, you talk a lot about uh, win-win strategies and how, you know, our failure to see those sometimes can lead us into trouble. I'm wondering, can you give an example of, of, of some of those or one of those? Yeah, well, one of them was when I uh, got back from Vietnam, 
Mm-hmm. Now, in, in Vietnam, I had um, uh, been at headquarters and headquarters company, and so I had to get a secret clearance. Mm-hmm. So when I got back, I was able to get a job at Bendex Aerospace that had some military projects and the Apollo moon, moon landing. And uh, one of the, the jobs I, I had there was subcontract administrator, and we had lens systems. So I, we were working with space optics, uh, just, just basically some MIT engineers uh, in, in around Boston, who were um, uh, devising these specialized lenses for us. And so I didn't know anything about lenses. You know, I'm just an economist. You know, what do I know about engineering? So when the lenses arrived, I I sent them out to the shop to have the engineers check them out to see if they made met specifications. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that they had what's called vignetting. You know, the, the engineers came back and said, oh, these have vignetting. I said, what's vignetting? You know, I don't know vignetting. <laughs> so they said, well, if we needed, uh, you know, for like the lander or other applications, we need peripheral vision because, you know, I mean, like for the lander, you, there's rocks and things. You only have a couple of minutes of fuel to, to do the landing. And if you can't find a decent landing place, you're in trouble, you know. So they needed peripheral vision. And vignetting is fuzziness uh, on the edges it's a sharp in the middle. So there's many applications where you only need it to be sharp in the middle. Uh, but for our application, we needed it to be sh- sharp all the way around. Mm-hmm. And so this was unacceptable. And I was very demanding uh, because I thought, well, the contract is the contract. They have to fulfill the contract. And so ultimately I m- made them deliver lenses that were worked, that didn't have the vignetting. But I, I refused to pay them any more, even though it cost more to do the vignette, you know, to clear up the vignetting problem. And so then when we needed more lenses, and I went back to them to ask for more lenses, they said, no, we're not going to work with you. We lost our shirt the first time. Right. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, okay, wait a minute, business is a relationship. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back and re- renegotiate the first contract to make sure they had a decent profit so that we could proceed with the second contract. Sure. So I learned my lesson that you're that working with your subcontractors is is a team sport. You know, you're working together and you need to make sure that everybody's doing well and you can't just think, be greedy and think of, you know, your bottom line at the, you're pushing it to its extreme. You have to say, okay, we're together. It's a win-win. Let's, let's work together. Right. So that's the idea. No, I think that that would be um, great if we took advantage of a lot more of those win-win opportunities for sure. Um, well, you, you mentioned in the book or you acknowledge kind of that people can be deceived into accepting, you know, these kind of subpar economic systems, I guess. And North Korea, you know, you use that as an example. But, um, you know, I was thinking so many people in the United States seem to be um, it, it seems like they've been deceived into believing in an economic theory of, of trickle down economics that that's clearly not really working for them. But they, they support it anyways. And I'm, I'm wondering, how has that happened and, and how do you change people's mindsets with that? Well, it's very interesting, Arch. What what happens is, and this happens in a lot of realms, and, and you know, we have these racial issues that are coming on now, mm-hmm. and people like to envision a, a wonderful world where everything is, is fair, and even Stephen, and and so they they think of this, this, this wonderful world with Adam Smith where, you know, you compete, uh, and then it gets the higher quality products at lower prices, and everything works. In a, in, a, in a very efficient way. Right. But there's also perverse parts of this free enterprise system that we don't focus on. And, and for example, 
there's the paradox of thrift. You may have heard of this in Economics 101. Matter of fact, you taught economics, right? So you would know mm -hmm. all about this. But basically, it's always uh, good to have a, a, uh, a refresher, though. So. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, when the economy starts to slow, so you start getting a slowdown in the economy, then uh, people notice that their neighbor got laid off, and they say, uh-oh, I better cut back on my expenditures. Maybe, we usually go out to that fancy restaurant, but we better skip it this week. And, you know, maybe we don't need to, to, to take quite such a fancy vacation um, you know, so they start cutting back. Mm -hmm. Well, cutting back, they're trying to save more, which is, of course, from a microeconomic point of view, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to save more. But from a macroeconomic point of view, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. Right. Because with everybody back, I mean, my expenditure is your income, and your expenditure mm -hmm. is my income. Yeah. And if we all start cutting back, then you start losing your job, I start losing my job, and we have a downward spiral. And, and so this is just as inherent in the free market system this, this perverse paradox of thrift as Adam Smith's, you know, wealth of nations idea that we work harder than competition. And so there are positive forces within the economy, but there's also negative forces. And we need to take those into account. Right. And we see that on Wall Street right now. For ordinary goods and services, uh, the, the, if you have high, a high price because of a shortage, then other suppliers will jump in and start supplying the good and they'll drive the price back down again. Right. And and if it's an exceptionally low price, people will jump in and start buying more. You know, if something's on sale, you go in and buy more of it, and that drives the price back up again. Mm -hmm. So they say, you know, the solution to high prices is high prices. The solution to low prices is low prices. Means the market will take care of itself and it'll adjust and go back to equilibrium very nicely. But unfortunately, in the financial markets, that doesn't work. Right. In the financial markets. As prices start going up, people say, oh, wow, I could make a lot of money in the market. <laughs> so they start putting more and more money in the market. And the market goes into this irrational exuberance and creates this big bubble, mm -hmm. which then bursts. And then, of course, people say, oh, now the prices are going down. I better get out of the market. And they all start getting out of the market. And it spirals down and down and down faster and faster. So you get these perverse parts of the free enterprise system. And you get these wonderful efficient parts of the free enterprise system, but it's all part of the free enterprise system. Right. And so we like to think about positive things, about good things, and keep things simple. And, you know, like in race, the racial issues, we like to think that there's no discrimination, that everybody's treated fairly, and, you know, why, why should we favor one group over another? Mm -hmm. You know, so we, we, we don't recognize that there are severe problems that need to be addressed. Right. And so... This is true in economics, it's true in race relations, it's true in many aspects of our lives, that we don't always recognize fully the problems that need to be addressed. And, and that's what I talk about in the book. Well, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I, I don't know um, when exactly you finished it and when it went to print and everything, but then the pandemic hit, and I'm sure it was pretty close to that, it sounds like. So, um, you know, that situation you're describing with the, the paradox of thrift, it seems like that's that's what's going on now. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what what's the solution or what's the way out of that? Well, uh, clearly we have to uh, intervene temporarily uh, to supplement people's uh, paychecks. I mean, we just can't let the economy just crash completely down, but we've got to get people back to work as quickly as we can. So we, we don't want to create perverse incentives, but at the same time, uh, we've got to, we don't want the demands for goods and services to collapse so that even more people are trying out of work. So mm -hmm. we have to temporarily 
and so that does involve some <clears throat> deficit spending, this deficit spending. But what the problem is, is we could get rid of that deficit spending if we could add another tool to the Federal Reserve Bank's toolbox, because their toolbox right now is designed for a situation that we faced right after World War II, where there was really strong demand and weak supply. And they would, they would go into the financial markets and they would get more money into the supply chain to, to fund more pl- expenditures for plant and equipment and all of that. And right. so they, they could encourage business. But that's not our situation now. We have very weak demand mm-hmm. and, and plenty of supply. They need a tool that will get them to directly to the consumer, to put money in the, with the consumer to spend that to keep the economy going. Yeah. And uh, President Bush did this with injecting $600, but he didn't do it through the Federal Reserve. He did it through, through the, the, the Congress, $600. And then more recently, people got the $1,200 uh, for a stimulus, mm-hmm. but the Federal Reserve is the one that's supposed to be controlling the money supply. I mean, in 1913, the whole purpose of setting up the Federal Reserve was to take the control of the money supply out of the hands of Congress, away yeah. from the politicians, who would tend to overuse it to buy votes, and instead give it to professional economists in the Federal Reserve Bank. But the tools they have are designed to work with Wall Street, with the financial markets, and they're not designed to work with Main Street. So they need a tool that will work with Main Street. And so that's where I propose creating these, what we call the My America Prosperity Accounts, where yeah. every citizen or everybody gets a bank account with the Federal Reserve Bank. And that way, when the Fed wants to inject money into the economy, it can inject money into these accounts, which people can then take out and spend. But right. the, the good part is that the average person has a much higher marginal propensity consumed than the Wall Street banker. So you don't have to give as much money to the people to get the economy going again than you do pumping money into Wall Street, which which uh, tends to just run up stock prices and bond prices and not really trickle down much to the real economy. Right. So you don't have to use as money. And then when the economy, if the economy starts to overheat, if you start getting a threat of inflation, then you can raise the interest rates in these accounts, which will encourage people to put money into the account and out of the economy. And, and the Fed will just hold on to that money, which will be out of the economy. So the money flow will be reduced to, to take the heat off the economy mm-hmm. to reduce the threat of inflation. So it works in both directions to have these, these Federal Reserve Bank accounts for every citizen. Well, and, you know, I think a lot of people listening would would probably say that that's their biggest concern with that idea is is inflation. And um, you talk a little bit in the book about that. And I'm, I'm wondering, can you can you say why that's not necessarily something that you're concerned about? Oh, I'm very concerned about it. OK. But what I want <laughs> is a very tight grip on inflation right. where you use less money to control the economy not pumping huge amounts of money into Wall Street without much control over where it goes or what happens. Uh, Whereas when you do it, when you give it to the citizens directly, they have a much higher marginal propensity consumed, so they're more likely to spend the money, so you don't need to give them as much money. And then you can, by raising interest rates on these accounts, uh, you can get the money withdrawn from the economy, get them to voluntarily put money into the accounts, mm-hmm. and slow. So you get a much more immediate, much a quicker, more effective, a more more uh, a, a cost effective, and that you're using fewer dollars to control the economy, 
So you're not taking as big a risk with regard to inflation. And you have a mechanism to, to bring money out of the economy uh, when you need to do so to avoid. And then you don't have to do the deficit spending. Right. So this does not involve deficit spending. It does not involve an increase in taxes. This is done through the Federal Reserve Bank, which is uh, creates money out of thin air. That's their prerogative. That's the Congress. Back in 1913, they were given the authority to decide how much money, you know, we used to call it printing money. Now it's, it's electronic money. But nonetheless, they create the amount of money that exists. And, and Milton Friedman, a conservative economist, said, well, we need the money supply to expand at approximately the rate that the economy is expanding. So if the economy is expanding at 2 or 3%, then the, the money supply should uh, increase at 2 or 3%. Mm-hmm. And that worked for a while, yeah. uh, from maybe 1950 to 1980. But after 1980, the velocity of money started changing, and it became harder to predict. Uh, so we needed to have the 400 economists, the, the PhD economists that work for the Federal Reserve Board, to have models that simulate the economy to take into account the, the, the velocity of money and other things to know how much money to inject at any particular time. And if we do gotcha. a better job at that, we'll have a much tighter control over possible inflation. Um, But right now, demand is very weak, and supply is very strong. And so the probability of getting a high level of inflation right now is pretty low. That doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about it in the future. But now is the time to put in the types of tools that will allow us to control inflation in the future and avoid the inflation in the future. Right. Okay. Well, um, one thing I... You know, I so I read about your um, your take on some of these states that are advocating for the fair tax, and I'm probably in the minority as being someone who's pretty far left, but who is also still a fan of it. And um, the reason being is that um, you know it actually it sounds like there are some things that maybe you know the the way that I understand that of how it's been proposed in Congress um, that might even merge with some of your ideas, and so. The idea of the the prebate that they incorporate that would cover the cost of taxes paid on basic necessities for families it sounds like it could be, you know, easily merged with you know the idea of the My America accounts and I it also seems like switching to a consumption based tax would mean that the rich would pay more taxes because you know they're not being taxed on income anymore which you you talk about in the book how you know a lot of times they're able to use their investment income and get a lower tax rate than people who are paying income taxes and so um it it seems like it would help reduce political power as well um, because the system would have fewer loopholes to uh, exploit since there's just a consumption tax so i guess i'm wondering is there a way that you know the the fair tax idea can be saved or or what are your thoughts well it's very interesting arch um, there's um, Robert Frank, who's an economics professor at Cornell University, has been proposing for a long time a consumption tax. Mm-hmm. And w- what it boils down to is that instead of just giving a, a, a small, allowing a small proportion of your income to go into a uh, tax-exempt uh, or um, tax-deferred uh, savings account, uh, he says, let's let people put their entire income if they want, to uh, a, a, uh, these tax-free account or tax-deferred accounts. Mm-hmm. And, and so you wouldn't pay any tax on income, but as soon as you withdraw the money from the account, and whether it be a, a, a stocks and bonds or whether it be a certificate of deposit in your nearby bank or a savings account, whatever it is, uh, right now you're allowed an individual retirement account. 
mm-hmm. in, in, you know, as well as a 401k or 403b, whatever, depending on your work situation. And, but those limit the amount of money you can put into them. But if we said, wait a minute, let's allow people to put their entire income into these accounts, or as much as they want, into these accounts. So as, as soon as they earn the money, it go, and it has to be earned money. It's not money you make from investments. It's got to be money you earned as, as a work, you know, working. Mm-hmm. And so those goes into these accounts. And so you don't get taxed on income at all. But as soon as you withdraw the money, that's considered consumption. You're taking it out of the savings, out of the CD, out of the stock market, wherever. It's no longer an investment. Uh, you're now taking it for consumption purposes. Then you get a tax, and and uh, and it could very well be a progressive tax where mm-hmm. you pay a higher percentage on the last few dollars than you were on the first few dollars. Where everyone pays the same on the first few dollars, and it's just when you get up higher and higher and higher that the in, the, the rate increases. But it would be a purely a consumption tax. It would not involve uh, any income. That would be the idea. Interesting. Okay. Well. Um Another thing that you talk about um, in the book that I was really um, interested in was, you know, how with advances in technology, capital is is winning out over labor. And, um, you know, at one point you even agree with uh, with Marx and his diagnosis of the problem of capitalism. It's just that your solution is um, is a little, you know, obviously very different, <laughs> not just a little. different. So um, I'm wondering, though, can you talk a little bit about some of the threats maybe that are posed by the fact that you know, uh, these advances in technology are kind of favoring people who, you know, control those those means of production. Yeah, this is a very interesting problem. It kind of goes back to the very conception of private property. Mm-hmm. So originally, in the hunter-gatherer societies, the idea of private property didn't exist. We, we all shared in the resources. If, you know, you go through the forest and you find, you know, grapes, you eat the grapes. It's not somebody else's grapes that you're eating. You're just eating Mother Nature's grapes or God's grapes. You know, when you catch fish, it's God's fish. It's, you know, that sort of thing. And so that worked fine until we got into agriculture. As soon as agriculture developed, then they started saying, well, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I'm growing these crops. I can't have somebody come over and steal my crops. You know, I, I put a lot of time and effort into this. And so they said, oh, okay, now we have to have the concept of private property. So John Locke came up with this idea that, well, you own your own body and you own your own labor. So when you imbue your labor into some natural resource, then it becomes yours. Mm-hmm. So if you go out in the woods and you get a, 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 a nice straight branch and you make a spear out of it and then you, you use a stone to make a spearhead, then that spear becomes yours. That becomes your property. And this worked really well. This concept of private property worked really well up until the craftsmen and the craftswomen who were making their own tools. And because and we were trying to get away from the nobility because, you know, at first there wasn't private property. At first God was said to own everything. The Native Americans, they said uh, the spirit world owns everything. And, and in England, for example, they said the king had dominion. God gave the king dominion over all the lands. So you couldn't take fish from the stream or, or, or deer from the forest without the permission of the king because the king had dominion over everything. Right. And it was only then that John Locke came up with this idea of private property. Now, the problem came about when the type of investment that was needed to, to get the factories going was larger than the workers could put together on their own. So then they had to go back to the nobility and get the money. And that's where capitalism came in. Because John Locke's idea was that you acquire your own capital 
And, and actually, this explains why the United States was so successful relative to Argentina. Because mm -hmm. in the 1800s, Argentina and the United States were at a par in terms of their gross domestic product and their gross domestic product per capita. And they were both facing the same thing. The United States in the 1800s was facing westward with the Great Plains and the, and, and the Rocky Mountains. Right. And Argentina was facing westward for the Papa grasslands and the Andes Mountains. And so we had the same opportunity. But the United States won out in this contest, and Argentina just, is just another country in South America. So how did the United States become a world power and this other country not? Well, what happened is Argentina allocated the land to the elite in advance. So when the people went out westward in Argentina, they were going to land that was already allocated to the elite. They could work the land, but they had to give most of the, the return to the owner of the mm -hmm. land. But when we went out into the frontier, it was the 40 acres and a mule. It was, it was you work the land and you can own the land. And then in the Civil War, they say this soldier died, the Union soldier died in battle. He bought a farm. Well, what that meant is there was a government program that would pay off the farm mortgage if the, if the, the male soldier died in battle. So his family would have the farm. And so our, our whole attitude was a lot different. As to, to you imbue your labor into the land, and that land becomes yours. And now we don't do that anymore. You can be yeah. a truck driver and drive the truck for 40 years, and you don't have any capital ownership in that truck whatsoever. Right. So we have divorced labor from capital. I know this sounds Marxist, but it's not Marxist. It's, 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 you know, it's devising a system. Uh, I mean, capitalism, quite frankly, doesn't work all that well if you don't have any capital. Right. Um, and, and so we need to have a system where people do get some degree. Not, I'm not saying, you know, we're not going to share everything equally or something like this Marxist thing. Right, right. But if you work on, in, in some capacity that you should, your labor should have some, uh, you should have some capital return for your labor. Let me put it that way. There should be a relationship between your hard work and the amount of return you get. Right. That's the most important thing. Well, and I... Um want to maybe talk a little bit too about, um, you know, I don't know if this is exactly related, but um, I was really excited when I was reading your book to see an economist who's actually in favor of some kind of form of, of Medicare for all or, or something along those lines, um, some kind of, um, you know, single payer system. And I'm wondering, can you explain a little bit about why you think that would be more efficient than what we've got currently in place? Yeah, it's very interesting, Arch, because we are um, approaching health care in an entirely different way than the other advanced countries in the world. Mm -hmm. We continue with a fee-for-service basis. So it starts out with the someone wanting to become a doctor. So they go to medical school, but medical school is really expensive. It's really, really expensive. So you pay all this money, you borrow all this money, you get, you get, it, get money to go to health, to, get, to go to medical school, to get your degree. And, and then you've got to pay back this money. And so you owe a lot of money. So you have to focus. And when you're starting out in, as, as a doctor, you have to focus on money, 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 money. You've got to pay your debts. Mm -hmm. And so then we have a fee-for-service system. And our fee-for-service system means you need more patients coming in. 
you know, they say that the doctors, they, they meet with you for 17, on an average, 17 and a half minutes, you know, and then the next patient comes in, 17 and a half minutes, the next patient, the next patient. And so they need, they have a production line of patients going in and in and in, and they need more procedures because they get money from, from the procedures. So they say, oh, well, you need this, you need that, you need this other thing. And then they want you to keep coming back, so they put you on prescription drugs, so you have to come back to get the prescription refilled. Mm-hmm. And so they've set up a system, and they, they refer you to all sorts of specialists left and right and up and down because they're referring to their friends and buddies so that they can pay off their their medical school debt as well. So we have a system, a fee-for-service system, that's not based on the outcomes, where other countries, advanced countries, look at the outcome and say, have you helped this patient? Did you did this patient recover from the illness that they had? You know, what was the best outcome for the, you know, and they get paid more on the basis of some of its salary and some of its, you know, sort of bonuses for doing, saving people with, you know, where it was a challenging situation and different, different things. But it's basically one that, that really is focused on the health of the, the person and not on making enough money to, 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 to pay back your, your school loans and, you know, keeping up with the other doctors and having a second home or a third home or, you know, whatever it is. So we get the, the, the physicians in the wrong mindset when they start out because of this, and we really be good, better, perhaps even to uh, provide some uh, financial support for doctors uh, in medical school so they don't have these huge debts because it sets them off on the wrong mindset. And then we need to change the fee-for-service system clearly to right. get this to work uh, more effectively. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear someone say that because it seems, um, you know, it seems so obvious <laughs> to to me, uh, but it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's one of those, I, you know, I think that we have this fear of government in the United States that seems be to be pretty deep seated. And, and that, that seems to be, you know, stopping people from uh, wanting to transition. So um, I don't know how to overcome that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm no political expert, so <laughs> I'm not sure uh, how you do that either. So that's well, a good question. Well, I really, uh, really enjoyed your book, and I would definitely recommend it if um, if uh, people you know are looking to purchase it or, or learn more about you. Is there some place they should go? Yes, there's. Um, if if they type into the URL, um, http colon slash slash, and then it's optimal, you know, o p t i m a l dash money dash flow dot website. So optimal-money-flow.website. Okay. And, and if they decide to purchase it through that website where it says buy now, it will go to Avila University Press and all of the money will go to student scholarships. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, I'm 75 years old and I don't really need any more money. You know, I don't have a huge amount, but I, I'm, you know, modest. I'm a professor, you know. And but I don't need a lot of money. I'm still happy driving my 1999 1999 Camry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not the, right. trying to drive any fancy car. And so what I told Allen University is that I would pay for the production and the mailing of the books. They could keep the entire purchase price. So if they go there, it's twenty four ninety five, and it all goes to student scholarships. And I make sure that you get the book uh, and. Uh, as quickly as I can get them to say, there's a warehouse that's got 4,000 of them in it. So <laughs> 4,000 of the books sitting there. So I'm happy to direct them to send the book to you if you've made the donation to Avila. So that's tremendous. And it leverages my, uh, you know, giving money to Avila by a multiple of about five. So for every dollar I 
them donating to Avila, they get basically five bucks. Uh, and that, that makes me feel good because I don't have any children to, to give whatever money I have here. And so this way I'm making a donation to students. So that's, that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. Well, that's really awesome. I'm, that's, uh, that's, uh, very commendable. Thank you for doing that. And, um, well, one thing I like to ask all my guests, and you mentioned that you're a, a podcast fan, is what what they're reading or watching or listening to these days to kill time. And um, so, are there any good podcasts or TV shows or books? You know, in addition to yours, uh, obviously, I would recommend that. But any others that you'd like yeah, to recommend? Course, as, as an economist, I'm, I, I love the Freakonomics. You know, yeah. this, uh, so Steve Levitt and and and, and uh, Steve Dunbar. Uh, the free economic show it's always great and that's that's on and the national public radio and the MTR uh, is, is is a great one that I, I really enjoy and you know I these books are they have their tremendous books out here I like the age of oversupply by Daniel Alpert okay. uh, who really explains conceptually what is going on uh, behind sometimes you don't look deep enough into what's going on and he really looks at these this oversupply problem which is all of these countries with all this labor that's flooded into the international markets and how that's affected us and how that's affected everyone else throughout the world so i, I really like that one um there's um one on that's somewhat similar to mine uh on on the people's quantitative easing by francis coppola c-o-p-t-o-l-a Okay. And uh, so she's proposing somewhat similar to what I proposed. And actually, I found out from some European friends that some European countries, uh, they used to have um, banks through the post office, that you mm. would go to the post yeah. office to deposit money, and you'd go to the post office to get money, and you know, you'd have an account with a post office, a, a, you know, a bank account with a post office. And I didn't even know that those existed. Uh, and I found that was really fascinating. So, yeah, um, yeah there's of interesting uh, books and uh, out there and lots of interesting podcasts. Uh, yours being, being one of these very interesting podcasts. Okay. I really enjoyed the thing about your grandma and your grandpa and okay. their life and how that was, had gone and where it was going. Um, so yeah, this, yeah, these are very interesting. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. I, uh, I'm actually sitting down here at the uh, property that we we purchased from them, and we're turning that into an Airbnb. Ripley, so. Ripley House. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty excited about it. So. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, before I let you go, I always like to ask people if they have any advice on uh, how to make it through the pandemic. So, um, do you have any advice you'd like to share? Well, you know, I'm a bit of a fanatic, <laughs> so I'm not sure if you want to follow in my footsteps or not, but. I wear two masks, and I scotch tape the top of the mask to uh, just below my eyes so that I can put on these workman's glasses to, because I heard about that doctor who got the, the coronavirus through his eyes. Oh, so now I, I put on that. some workman's glasses, and, um, and I put on two pairs of gloves. Um, you know, one is the surgical gloves, and the other is just the regular pair of gloves, and then I can sort of... Uh, shed the gloves as I come back home, you know, and, and mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I'm a bit of a fanatic, so I'm not sure that you need to go as extreme as I am, um, but, you know, that's what I'm doing, you know, kind of doing what I'm doing, yeah. whether it makes any sense or not, but, you know, different, as we used to say in the 60s, different strokes for different folks. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I think that's probably some good advice, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the show. Thanks so much. 
Well, it's a great time with you, Arch, and, and you're being an economist has been very valuable because you obviously understand these things much better than, than most people, and um, so that's that's tremendous. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but thank you for the kind words, and I uh, appreciate you being on the show again. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, all right, well, take care. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, that was my interview with uh, Dr. Larry Marsh, and um, it's really exciting talking to him. Um, I uh, would definitely recommend his book. Uh, there's a lot that I didn't even get to of ideas that he has. Um, he's even proposing a, um, a new branch of government, so I would definitely recommend to read that and um, uh, check it out. And um, like he said, it's, it's really, I didn't even know, it's really exciting that the uh, proceeds are going to support student scholarships. So, so that's really great. And um, I really appreciate everybody taking the time to uh, listen to the show. And if you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate it if you could, you know, maybe leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or um, share it with a friend. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, take care, everybody.